Big changes are coming to the Army's recruiting apparatus. That's after the Army missed its 2023 recruiting goal by a wide margin and after several consecutive years of recruiting shortfalls. Among other changes, the Army plans to raise the stature of its recruiting command, build a new career field for military recruiters, and start targeting different demographics. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. The Army ended fiscal year 2023 with 55,000 new recruits, short of the 65,000 the service had aimed for this year. And not all of those soldiers joined the Army right away. About 4,600 went into the service's delayed entry pool. Christine Warmoth, the Secretary of the Army, says officials always knew the 65,000 target was a stretch goal, and it's not yet clear how many new recruits the Army will be able to manage this year. I think now the, the recruiting enterprise in the Army very much understands how important that role is and you know they don't they don't need us to sort of signal to them put the pedal to the metal they did that this year we're going to keep doing that we've got a lot of you know work to do to implement all of these changes so I would imagine we'll settle on something lower than 65,000, but what specifically we still need to sort of talk through with our G1 community. That's partly because some of the changes the Army wants to make will take years to implement. For example, officials want to make a significant change in the types of Americans recruiters spend their time targeting. By 2028, they want at least a third of new recruits to have at least some college education. What we've really tried to focus on, since this is an existential issue for us, is What can we change right now? What can we do to help ourselves? A huge change in the last 20 years is that many more young people go to college coming out of high school today than they used to. So the high school market is actually shrinking. Um, The Army actually gets 50% of our contracts from high school seniors or high school graduates. But when you look at the broader labor market, only 15 to 20 percent of the labor market is comprised of individuals with just high school education. So that's a big change. Meanwhile, there will also be some significant changes to the recruiting workforce. Warmoth says the Army plans to create a new talent acquisition occupational specialty dedicated to recruiting. The new designator will be 42 Tango. Now, again, to enable our recruiters to be successful in going after that changed labor market, we are going to shift from what I would call sort of a borrowed workforce to a permanent specialized recruiter workforce. You know, we essentially um, are most of our recruiters. We do have specialized recruiters, 79 Romeos, but um Many of our recruiters come from different MOSs all across the Army. You know, they do a stint in recruiting, and then they go back out to do the thing that is their main MOS. You know, unlike the private sector, we do not have a specialized permanent recruiting workforce. We need to change that. We're also going to create a new warrant officer opportunity associated with being a permanent recruiter. And we're going to basically start giving our recruiters more training. You know, right now they do not get a lot of additional training to come and be recruiters. We're going to give them opportunities to train with industry, for example, and we're going to start selecting them differently. Today we we basically use administrative criteria to select our NCOs who recruit. You know, they have basically a background check to make sure that they can, you know, work appropriately with young people. We're going to start using an aptitude test to make sure that the folks that we bring into the recruiting workforce 
have the kind of skills and attributes to be successful in what is a pretty challenging responsibility. And considering that recruiting issues are existential to the Army, officials have concluded they need to raise the stature of Army Recruiting Command within the service's organizational chart. Going forward, the command will be led by a three-star general rather than a two-star. The relatively new Chicago-based Army Enterprise Marketing Office will also be folded into that command, as will the Army's Cadet Command, which is in charge of recruiting and training officers. And future commanders of Army Recruiting Command will serve unusually long tours of duty in that position for years. We've had great GEOs lead USAREC over the years, but their average tenure is around two years. And... You know, I know, uh, and I'll say this on the record, that I'm more effective as the Secretary of the Army at two and a half years in than I was in the first six months. Uh, I hope I'll continue to improve. uh, And this will give the opportunity for that leader to, you know, really understand the job, put new initiatives in motion, and see them through. General Randy George, the Army's Chief of Staff, says the service also wants Recruiting Command to become a center of experimentation that helps refine the Army's approaches to recruiting. Much of that will be led by a new deputy commanding general who's focused on innovation. In my experience, a lot of it, the best ideas usually come from the bottom up. And I'll give you an example. I was up in Albany. There's a sergeant first class who comes, who gets an off-the-shelf software and like Indeed or something very similar and starts, you know, canvassing the areas. And he was able just through doing that to figure out how, you know, how they could talk to the recruiters, could talk to the folks that were, might be interested in the military who may not have even known about it. So what we're, what we're going to do is make sure that we get the resources and authorities down to USAREC. So not anywhere here in the building, but out in USAREC. Um, we are going to put a DCG, a deputy in USAREC who can focus on innovation, making sure that they have software Um, If there's contracting that needs to happen um, or really pushing through some of the other bureaucratic hurdles that might be resident on occasion, that we have somebody to do that. George says the Army also needs to do a much better job of studying and evaluating what works and what doesn't when it comes to recruiting strategies, since those strategies will need to evolve over time. So the service also plans to create a new evidence-based organization at the Pentagon to pour through data about what kind of bang for the buck it's been getting out of different enticements for prospective recruits. We've given bonuses. We've given staging choice. We, we do a lot of these things, and I think what we haven't done a good enough job is, is the data analytics to understand which how are these things working. A real close study of our advertising. Um, a lot of things, honestly, that I think we should have been doing, we haven't been doing, that we need to do as we move forward. And we have um, the ORSA's uh, operations research and the analyst to do that. So we're looking at, at kind of corralling that a little bit together. We have some of that up at West Point Army Research Institute here in G1. So we'll look to piece all that together and make sure um, that's part of use of rec. If we have to hire additional folks, we're looking and doing that as well. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful so it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.